WTF Sharp is mathematical planning. In this episode, I will be joined by Matthew Cruz, an expert in this area who has been talking about and thinking about mathematical planning for years, and who has been recently been developing a library called FLIPS, which allows you to model mathematical planning problems, as well as send these models to a solver. I had a great conversation with Matthew. It was about a little bit over a week ago, and inspired me enough to go ahead and watch a workshop of his that was recorded and posted to YouTube. It's a little bit shy of three hours. It's a pretty much full introduction to mathematical planning within F-sharp using the FLIPS library. At the very end of this episode, I'll post a very brief review of that course. Within this episode, we go over a number of topics, including what mathematical planning is. We'll go over Matthew's background in software development, how he got into it from an adjacent field, talk about how mathematical planning is currently used at Quicken Loans, where Matthew works, and we'll, we'll kind of discuss how to get into mathematical planning from uh, just a normal you know, F-sharp developer's perspective. I came into this conversation thinking I would be overwhelmed. Fortunately, I was not. Matthew makes this topic very approachable. I really appreciated that. Without any further ado, I'd like to join Matthew. Matthew, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. How are you? I'm doing well. And you're uh, based in Portland, correct? I am now. For a while, I was out of Detroit. Then when the pandemic hit, my wife and I decided to move back to family. And so, yeah, I'm out of Portland now. Gotcha. So you, you grew up in Portland originally? Yeah, grew up in Portland, went to work for Quicken Loans, and they wanted me on site, which was great. And I really loved Detroit. I loved my team, awesome environment. But pandemic, Michigan winter is a little rough with two little kids. So yeah. we made the call to come back home. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So who are you working for now? You said you were working for Quicken Loans. Yeah, I'm still working with Quicken Loans. Fantastic company, a big group of F-Sharp developers. Last time I checked, I think it was... We had 30 people in our family of teams. Quicken is mostly a .NET shop. And a lot of the organization is C-sharp, like, you know, classic C-sharp, Angular, that type of stack. But this specific group serves a particular need in the finance area where we're actually selling the mortgages. It's a really complex domain. And when you have hundreds of billions of dollars flowing through that system, you want to know it's correct. So there was a decision to say, you know what, F-sharp is great and it's really good at domain modeling. So the decision was said, let's use F-sharp. It's still a .NET language, so it's going to play nice with everything, but it's going to allow us to really accurately model this complex domain. And so now there's a group of teams building a suite of microservices. I mean, it's it's a buzzword soup. <laughs> Docker <laughs> containers and Kafka and all that good stuff. Yeah, I, I work with them. And my, my focus in that group is to be the expert on mathematical planning which is mm -hmm. why I'm really passionate about the subject, but it's a really fantastic team. Hats off to uh, Paul Blasucci. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. He was one of the people that helped kick that off way back in the day. So his work has continued to echo into the future. <laughs> that's great. And how long ago were the F-sharp teams kind of formed within Quicken? Ah, that's a great question. It's gotta be about 11 years, 11, okay. 12 years ago. That's great. So let's get back to Quicken Loans in a bit. I'm curious, how did you get into programming and then in F-sharp? And then uh, how did you get into Quicken from there? Oh, for sure. I grew into programming sideways. Uh, <laughs> when someone asked me, when's the first time you ever programmed? Like, well, that would have probably been eight years old with QBasic 
back in the mm-hmm. day. My friend had the game Star Control, and I wanted to play Star Control, but I didn't have the money to buy it. So what I decided to do, like, well, I'll, I'll just program something in QBasic. And I had little triangles flying around, but that was about it. Then from there, I went away. I did chemistry, chemical engineering, industrial engineering. So I was hardcore engineering route, did not do much programming. What ended up happening is as I got into the real world doing work, the hardest part of solutions was building the tool. And the tool was always a piece of software. I didn't like getting backed up behind everyone else's requests for IT departments and the developer teams. So I said, well, shoot, I'll just start programming something. And it started with VBA in Excel. I'm sorry. I'm sorry ahead of time, everyone. <laughs> I think that's how a lot of people start. I don't think there's I, any apology there. I, yeah. And it's one of those things where I know Excel well enough. I know where all the sharp edges are, but mm-hmm. it is, it's still a fantastic tool. Excel is still the operating system of finance. As much as people might want to complain about it, that tool has yielded a lot of value. Grew from that and started doing some C-sharp when I was doing graduate work because I was having to implement some meta heuristics, things like simulated annealing, genetic algorithms, blah, blah, Mm -hmm. blah. I did it in C-sharp and I was having such a hard time because my head does not get around object-oriented programming. I was just terrible at it. And then F-sharp 2.0, I think had just released and was for the first time included in Visual Studio. I said, well, I'm going to check out this F-sharp thing. That's about 2010, somewhere around there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I checked it out and I wrote the most imperative F-sharp you have ever seen. (laughs) I'm like, why am I having to say mutable and all these things? This is obnoxious. (laughs) It's because like my mind was not ready for functional programming yet. Later, as I spent some more time in the industry, I was working at an e-commerce company where I was building supply chain optimization tools. Again, this question of accuracy came up. Lots of money flowing through the system. Like, okay, I'm going to give F-sharp a try again because of units of measure. Units of measure is this killer feature that I think is undersung. Because we're doing all these financial calculations, you're going for like, hey, is this like dollars per unit? Is this like a case of items? Is this individual item? There's a lot of conversions that you're needing to keep track of in that domain. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to do F-sharp again. And that's where I really picked up F-sharp and, and like focused on like, I'm, okay, I'm going to get good with this tool. I'm going to learn how to really program F-sharp and really dive in. And that's when I started doing it seriously. And that was probably five or six years ago. And how did you get into it more seriously? Reading books. Expert F-sharp was out there. There was several, the Pluralsight courses were up at that point. And so hats off to Mark Seaman. Yeah, I think Kit had a few back then. Yeah, I think he did as well. But that was how I started to really learn it. And I just got every book that I could Mm -hmm. on it. I think Tomas, his book on like functional programming, which is like C sharp and F sharp, his was out at that point. So I bought mm-hmm. that one and it's just started reading and playing around with it and just kind of started banging my head against the wall. And so it was just kind of like trial by fire and just experimenting and playing around with like, how do I do these things? Since then, I've spent a lot of time developing the basics of knowing how to program well and design patterns and architectural patterns. The nice thing is with F-sharp, you kind of get drugged down the pit of success (laughs) where it's like, well, don't iterate through something, just use a map. 
right? And and just use use functions, your use pure functions. If you do that, a lot of those design principles just happen by happy accident. It was so much easier for my mind to wrap around the idea of a function and passing functions around than an object-oriented way of composing models, composing ideas, composing a domain. I don't have anything against object-oriented programming. Just like my mind it didn't fit well with how I thought. I sure, not intuitive. Yeah, I came from the math side of things. And so the way F-sharp allows you to compose a domain and compose solutions was much more natural for me. And so I wouldn't be a developer today if it wasn't for F-sharp because all the other programming languages that I tried to pick up, like, they didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so from there, like I said, I was working at an e-commerce company, building supply chain optimization tools in F-sharp, having a lot of fun. I went to a conference in NDC, Minnesota, where I met a friend of mine, Jim. He was working and still works at Quicken Loans, and we just got to talking. We were in the, the machine learning workshop that Matthias Brandewinder gives at NDCs. And so Jim and I got to talking, and he's like, oh, you know, we're doing this cool stuff where we're, we're using F-sharp, and we're trying to optimize how we're trading mortgages and i just like my eyes lit up i'm like oh my gosh mm. this is so cool he was super kind but like oh my gosh like i gotta talk to you <laughs> <laughs> and so he described what they were doing and i was just so excited based on kind of like the vague information he was giving me i i went back to my my room and i formulated an optimization model for him a mathematical mm. planning model for how to do this trading of mortgages. And I gave that to him. I'm like, use this, print money. <laughs> <laughs> and then about five months later, so this is two and a half, almost three years ago, I was at a place where I was just kind of looking for a new opportunity. I, I reached out to Jim. It's like, hey, are you guys hiring over at Quicken? And he's like, you know what? Funny enough, we are. I'm like, oh, that'd be great. I'd love to put my name in there. And so I get interviewed. They flew me out. We had uh, some discussions. And I think it was about two weeks later, I had an offer. And I was like, well, honey, uh, I, I think we're moving to Detroit, if you're OK with that. <laughs> <laughs> so that's when I joined the Quicken team. And now it, it was fantastic joining that team because it was really getting to see F-sharp at scale in a really high level engineering environment with what I had been doing before. It was a lot of, you know, writing scripts or just like really small algorithms that were then embedded in C-sharp programmers programs. So this was like, you no know, F-sharp top to bottom, the whole thing, like I said, at some pretty serious scale, I'm like, oh, this is awesome. And my mind was just blown away by just like the level of people that were there and what they were doing. I'm like, how come no one is talking about the awesome things you are doing here. <laughs> I, I think it's just a really humble group of people who are just doing amazing work. They're the dark, the, the dark mass developers where they're just people who are doing great work and they're just content to do that. And so I've been trying to push people like, hey, we, like, we need to talk about how cool this is. <laughs> Yeah, that's what, so that's where I think I became like a truly experienced F-Sharp developer once I had spent some time with that team and seeing what they were doing. And I was just, like, like I said, just blown away. This is uh, a whole different level of rigor when there's hundreds of billions of dollars flowing through. The system has to stay on. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine you to measure being really big there. Oh, yeah. So, so at Quicken Loans, what is mathematical planning? How is that applied there? 
anytime you run across a problem where there is a quantifiable objective, like you have some way of measuring success. Okay. Constraints to be obeyed. Like these are rules that we have to follow, whether they be legal or business, like, but there's like, there's limits on what you're allowed to do. Mm-hmm. And then decisions within that framework. Like, hey, do I put people here? Do I put people there? Do I allocate money there? Do I build facilities here? So those are the kinds of decisions I'm talking about. Anytime you have those three ingredients, you have a mathematical planning problem. The literature, if you go into you know your research library or something, you're going to see things like linear programming, integer programming, stochastic programming. That term programming back in the day used to mean planning. Right, is it like optimization? Exactly. And so mathematical planning is kind of like this small subset of optimization. Optimization, you know, is a huge wide Mm -hmm. field. Mathematical planning is very much about using math to make optimal plans. That's what it's trying to do. So anytime like, hey, I need a plan that allows me to maximize my revenue while mitigating my risk, you have a potential mathematical planning problem. It's not hard to imagine that in the finance industry, there's a lot of those problems. With what Quicken is doing, there's a lot of different times in a loan's life that it has to be allocated to different financial instruments, right? You say like, hey, I'm going to fund it using this line. I'm going to put it in this bond. I'm like, there's lots of different ways you can move loans around for trading. Each of those ways has different amounts of revenue associated with it. So you immediately see this opportunity. Hey, I'm wanting to maximize my revenue. I have decisions to make. Where do I put a loan? And I have constraints to obey. Legal limitations on what I'm allowed to do, right? Very naturally, you have a mathematical planning problem. And there's lots of those inside the finance industry. But it's not just finance, which is why I want more people to be aware of mathematical planning. Because lots of industries, lots of problem domains have problems that fit that description. Like we have a quantifiable objective, we have constraints to obey and decisions to be made. Another one I've been doing a blog post series on is just assigning jobs to machines, right? Hey, I have, I have a set of work that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. I have machines that can process that work and I'm wanting to minimize the cost or maximize the revenue or mm-hmm. maximize the efficiency. So assignment problems are classic examples of mathematical planning. Like, hey, I got to set Given constraints, like what specs they have? Exactly. And, you know, specs on the machine, like in this example, or just like on scheduling, Hmm. right? Just like, hey, I need this job done by a particular time. I Mm -hmm. I don't care about when you do it in that time. It just needs to be done before a certain period. And you can have things where like, hey, I don't want more work on this machine. I don't want too much of a particular type of job on this machine because it causes additional wear. Other classic examples are in the logistics industry where it's like, hey, we got boxes that need to go from point A to point B. We have trucks that we can load them on, warehouses that they can be housed at, and we have to make a plan that moves all that inventory to its destination in the least amount of time possible or in the most profitable way possible. So again, like another example of quantifiable objective, constraints to be obeyed, your truck is only so big, your warehouse only has so much space, 
the box needs to get there by a certain date. And then the decisions, like, do I put the box on this truck or do I put it on that truck? Do I put it in this warehouse or that warehouse? So another kind of classic case of that. I guess I have two questions out of that. Number one, what do you do once you find that you have a mathematical planning problem? You know, what's, what do you, what do, you mm-hmm. do? And then also, you know, what's the threshold for kind of understanding this? Is this something that you have to be some kind of math whiz for? Or is this something you can step into if you understand some, you know, the, the simplex method, very simple kind of optimization problems? I love these questions. I'm going to start with the second one because I want everyone to realize any developer can do this. The workflow for working with medical planning is very similar to working with the database. Well, let's think about what the, the workflow is like. With mathematical planning, what you do is you build up a model which contains constraints, the decisions, and the objective. And then you send that to a solver, and the solver takes that model that you built and then searches for the best solution to it. And all the fancy math is actually hidden behind that call to the solver. I do not do the fancy math. Developers do not need to do the fancy math. You don't even need to really understand the fancy math to utilize the tool. Okay, who does the fancy math? The solver does. So when you build up the model, a description of your problem, you give that to the solver, The solver's where all the linear algebra is happening. It crunches, and then it gives you a result back. And the result back is saying, hey, for these decisions, I want you to choose these values. You say, hey, as I build up my description of a model, I say like, hey, I have a decision to make. I need to know how many trucks I assign to this warehouse, as an example. That goes into my model. I send the model off to the solver. Math, math, math. Solution comes back and it says 10 trucks. Great. Mm-hmm. And it says, and if you execute this plan, this is how much money you should anticipate making. Right. Okay. So I'm just getting the results back of those decisions. I'm telling it, hey, this decision can be between a value of zero and 100. And then it uses its search to say, you told me this decision could be zero and 100. And I tell you, you should use 10. That's what you're getting back. And it's very similar to how developers work with databases. So what are we doing what are we doing when we work with a database? Well, we're writing a query. Mm-hmm. What is a query? It's a declarative description of the result that I am looking for. Like, hey, I want you to go to this table, I want it to join on these fields, and I want it to meet these conditions and give me that set of data back. I've used a declarative language, SQL, to describe the data I want. I send that query off to the database. The database then does its fancy math, right? It's, it's got all of its like set theory and query mm-hmm. optimization, but like there's some serious engineering mm-hmm. that went into that query engine. It does its magical thing and then it presents you a table of data back. That right? makes sense. I like that analogy. It's the exact same thing with mathematical planning. It's just that declarative language is different. It's a different declarative language. We do this all the time. It's the same thing with like websites and HTML. I'm, I'm declaring a structure and then the browser is going to render that for me to see. That's why I say any developer can do mathematical planning. It's just, you have to spend a little bit of time understanding that domain specific language 
And that's why I get excited about F sharp for it because F sharp makes it really easy to express these problems, which is, <laughs> which is why I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so awesome. <laughs> that's great. Are there solvers out there that are generic and have kind of universal language or is this within each kind of ecosystem? Um, so I'm thinking like, you know, for SQL or for databases, mm -hmm. we have pretty much universal language, right? There's variance yep. between them and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Are, are, is there basically a universal language for quote-unquote solvers? Generally, yes. All solvers will speak in terms of constraints, objective function, decisions, decision yep. variables. They might they call them slightly different things, but they're all describing that same set of primitives. Okay. Now, different libraries and different solvers may have additional features. And again, this is why I like the database analogy because yeah. like, yeah, well, SQL is pretty ubiquitous, right? SQL maps to almost any data source. But like if you're writing against Microsoft SQL Server, you're using T-SQL. If you're going against Oracle, you're using PL-SQL. And so basic SQL is still there, but there's just additional things on top. So mm -hmm. if I'm using a specific solver, that solver may have additional knobs and dials that I could use, but it shouldn't prevent you from being able to utilize mathematical planning. You might need to just, if you want to do something more advanced, then you might want to dig into those additional features. A lot of what I have found, and th so this is really kind of getting to one of the questions I wanted to get to is like, you know, well, why don't developers know about this? It's because mathematical planning was really born out of applied mathematics, then migrated into the operations research field, and never really made the jump over to computer science. In the past, the tools for doing it were all very proprietary, and you didn't have these nice universal languages. And so any solver you had had maybe its own specific language for working with it. There were some efforts to create some more universal languages, but they were kind of domain specific languages, but it only worked in that environment and it didn't mm. plug into like C or C++ or C Sharp or Java. Eventually that happened. And so what's exciting is that with Python, Python did some amazing things for the developer community. One of them being Jupyter Notebooks. Mm -hmm. And the idea of like, hey, I'm just going to have a notebook. I'm going to play around with it. And people finally wrote libraries for doing mathematical planning in Python. And now you can do that work in a quote unquote real language, like a, a real general purpose <laughs> language. And so the operations researcher, you know, that expert in mathematical planning could work in the same language that the solution is being delivered in. That's exciting stuff. And now that same type of, and there's stuff, there has been stuff available for the .NET ecosystem, like Optano is a library. That uh, didn't fully catch on. It's a marketing problem, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. When you talk about, hey, who can do this? There's this perception that only someone with special training can do this. Like, oh, you said mathematical planning, math, that stuff's scary. I can't do that. I'm like, well, that's just the name. You actually don't do any math. Right. <laughs> and so there's it's just modeling, it, really. Yeah, it's just modeling. And is it helpful to understand what's going on when you call the solver with your model? Sure. In the same way that it's useful to understand databases when you write a query. Like, hey, if I do this join on a column that doesn't have an index, it's going to have to do a table scan. That will make it sad. Maybe I shouldn't do that. <laughs> 
So it's, it's the same expectation. Like, hey, if you understand the tool, you might be able to get better results, but it still doesn't prevent you from using the tool. That's what I've been trying to do in raising awareness. Like, hey, this tool is out there. It's a really great tool to use and it's not hard. It's mm -hmm. not scary. It's no more complex than things that we already do. And I would hazard to say, being able to write really great queries is a more difficult task than writing really good models. A lot of real world problems are actually just really dirt simple models. I can't talk about the specific model, but one that we use at Quicken that makes us a lot of money. <laughs> You're just gonna have to trust me, but it's like such a dirt simple model. It's embarrassing. Oh my gosh, we are making so much more money with such a simple model. If you think about it, assignment problems are hard problems, right? Like, mm -hmm. hey, I have a set of things. So like, I'm gonna go back to the machine one, right? I have a set of jobs. I need to assign them to machines. Let's say that I could get a 10% improvement in the efficiency of those machines. If I have a 10% improvement every day, that is gonna add up to a huge advantage over time. And the other valuable thing is a lot of the times these planning things that people are doing, like making that plan to assign jobs to machines. If a human being is doing that, that's typically very labor intensive. It takes a real domain expert who understands the nuances of what is going on. And so it may take them hours to do that. And it's more prone to mistakes. Exactly. And so if you say, hey, we're going to turn that into a mathematical planning model, it's going to solve in 10 minutes and it's going to be reliable. This is a huge deal. I think one of the other really fun examples of mathematical planning being used in interesting ways that other people might find really interesting is that the National Football League, so I'm talking about American football, <laughs> <laughs> they planned their season using mathematical planning. There's a really fantastic talk they gave on the Groby YouTube channel. Groby is spelled G-U-R-O-B-I. They are a company that creates a solver that you can get a license for if you want. And so you can get like nice support and stuff, but they work with the NFL and the NFL uses their solver to create the entire season. The reason they do that is because there's so many sophisticated constraints and having the best possible schedule is going to yield billions of dollars in additional right. revenue. So they want to make sure they're getting the best possible season plan. Yeah. So imagine a lot of their constraints are around weather and location yeah. and travel and whatnot. Yeah. And more sophisticated than that, there's all kinds of agreements with like TV advertising where it's like, Hey, I want, you know, this many high profile matchups. Okay. Well, I have to guarantee Fox and ABC and these different news outlets their time to shine and they don't want to have their game, their high profile game up against another high profile game. And so there's all these really sophisticated things that go into that that make that a really challenging problem. It's really fun. It's funny, I'm thinking of a, a much less profitable thing. I used to work in higher education and we had a kind of a hand-rolled solver, if you will, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. dealt with similar kinds of problems regarding, you know, at a two-year college, you want to transfer to a four-year college. What are the different programs that can work for that given yep. constraints such as what credits transfer and those kind of things? Mm -hmm. And I'm, my mind's going, hmm, I wish I would have known mathematical planning back then. It would have been neat to replace that hand-rolled solver with something we could have shipped off to a third party. Another great example in that domain is just scheduling classes. 
right? That That is always this really painful activity. It's like, well, I have, as a university, I need to offer these classes. They need to have these capacities. I have these buildings and these rooms available at this time. That's pretty easy to express as yeah. a mathematical planning problem. Again, there's just a lack of marketing, a lack of awareness, which is why I'm just trying to like <laughs> pump out content. Like, hey people, like this is a solve problem. <laughs> That's great. So you mentioned Garobi, which is one yeah. solver and it sounds like yep. a proprietary solver. What's the difference between like proprietary solvers and open source solvers? Can you name drop some other solvers and kind of their background and, and also how you interop with those with other language if there's drivers built in or mm -hmm. if you kind of mm -hmm. have to do stuff yourself? So I guess yeah. first off, uh, what if you could name drop some solvers out there and kind of mention if they're open or proprietary? Yeah, great question. Let's start with the open ones. Okay. Right. So CoinOR is an organization that puts out some open source solvers. I don't remember the, what that CoinOR stands for, but it's an organization that is kind of made up of researchers and some industry experts, and they put out some open source solvers. If you see CBC is uh, it's CoinOR, Branch, and Cut. I don't remember exactly what it is, but the yep, acronym is We'll link is it CBC. in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I can, and I can give these for you. But CBC is one that's out there. Another one is actually Google has a solver that is open source, and it is dang impressive. I've been really blown away, and they're very responsive on their GitHub. So if you ever have questions, they are very quick to respond. You can use both of those from .NET and Java or like any any language environment, mm -hmm. right? And typically the way you use them is you're just importing a library. That's it. So it's very easy to use. If you're working in C Sharp and you want to use those, I suggest the Optano library, A-P-T. A and O. Again, I'll provide links, but they provide a really great library for expressing models and then sending them to different solvers in the back end. CBC one and the Google, it's called the GLOP. They call it the GLOPs. <laughs> Google Linear Optimization something. Those are the two open source ones. The Google one is only for certain types of problems. And I don't know if I want to get that deep in the weeds as, sure. because that becomes pretty, it's more specialized. Yeah, it's it's more it, well, it's just a more nuanced discussion than it be had hard to have on radio. <laughs> but <laughs> limitations on the CBC one, it's open source, which means it's being built by people who are volunteering their time to maintain it. I've been able to solve some pretty hard problems using that solver, but it's limited. You don't have big financial contracts behind it. I think CBC is a great thing to start with. But if you scale up the size of your problem or you start modeling some really complex things, it might start to struggle. How big of things can you solve with it? Well, I've solved stuff with like hundreds of millions of decisions and hundreds of millions of constraints and it, it'll solve. Sometimes though, if you need to bring in the big guns, right? Let's say you have a really sophisticated model like the NFL, right? The NFL has a really sophisticated, difficult problem. Then you might want to reach for a commercial offering. Groby, like I mentioned, is a company that I'm going to say this up front. I receive no money from anybody on any of these things. I'm just a big fan of the Groby solver. Uh, it's a really awesome group of people. If you go and read the research papers, all those PhDs, yeah, they are all working at Groby and they have amazing support. 
Right. And they're very friendly. And if you want to see, hey, my model got really big and CBC isn't able to solve it, mm -hmm. Groby will give you a trial license, no problem, and will let you see if their solver will be able to solve it. And so theirs is kind of what theirs is an industrial strength solver. Okay. Would you call them the de facto they the people typically go to? They're the first ones. They're your de facto. Yeah, yeah. I would I would tr I would go to them first. There's another library out there from IBM called Cplex. Cplex has been around for a really long time. The funny thing is the people who wrote Cplex are the same people who left IBM and started Garobi. So Cplex is another really great solver. I am just, I'm not as familiar with the team there, but if you want an industrial sure. strength solver, there's is another. There's some others that I haven't tried. Uh, Express is another one. Uh, I think Local Solver is another one. Frontline Solutions is another one. That, so Frontline is interesting because you know the solver in Excel? That's a stripped down version of the Frontline Solver. So that's what's baked in. So if you ever wanted to like use Excel for formulating your models and making really big ones, uh, Frontline is the one that makes the plugin. These solvers, are they mostly something that you self-host, you kind of pay license for the download and then kind of run yourself locally? Are they mostly cloud hosted or where do these solvers run? Great question. And and are they also distributed in any way? They, there are different deployment scenarios. For okay. if it's CBC or Google, it's just a DLL and you're running it locally or you're running it wherever your program is running. It's just a part of your program or your script. For Garobi, they offer some different deployment scenarios. So you can have the DLL and run it locally if you want to. But if you want to offload work to a compute server, you can absolutely do mm -hmm. that. What I'm, balance, what I'm trying to balance right here is for the average developer, there's a lot of real world problems that are easily solved on your local machine. But when you get to the big stuff, you might want GPU optimizations or something like yeah, that. Yeah, if you, if you say like, okay, like played with something locally, it looks like it's really cool, and now we want to scale it 100x. Okay, I yeah. want to put that on something with some serious horsepower. Part of the reason I write Garobi is it's pretty seamless to choose different deployment scenarios, and they've solved the hard problem of how to do that. And so you can have a server like on-prem behind your firewall, and it's hosting the Garobi solver, and you send your job over there, it computes, and it comes right back. And so the solver can run there. They also offer cloud solutions. So you're like, hey, Groby, I don't even want to think about having to manage anything as far as the server. They'll spin up something for you in AWS. It'll have all the necessary libraries on it. You send your job, basically your model, to the server. Yep. It solves and sends the answers back to you. And that experience is pretty transparent. It really just kind of depends on your deployment scenario. With what we do at Quicken, our model is easy enough that we can solve it in a Docker container. We have some pretty beefy machines running our Docker containers, but it solves pretty quick. So if you have a small instance of a problem, it's pretty easy to just, like I said, wrap that in a container and just run that somewhere. And you can just kind of treat it like an API call or something. But if you want to give, I'm going to give the solver two hours to search for the solution, right? Well, you might want to run that on some dedicated hardware or dedicated VM with lots of compute resources so it could really churn on that problem. And that's all, it okay. all depends on like the value of these answers. If the solution to this is going to make me another $10 million every year, 
hopefully you can get that through your resource allocation. <laughs> it's like, okay, can we afford to get like a VM with some serious CPU to be able to solve these yeah. valuable problems? Again, it kind of depends on your industry, but that's the kind of revenue uptick that is pretty common, like really significant increases. Again, it depends on the problem, but uh, it's surprising how much more money can be found using optimized plans. When you're modeling your problem, are you thinking about the bindings to the solver throughout, or is it pretty much you model your problem as if you know, you're ignorant to how you're gonna solve it, and then you kind of shape your binding to the very end? Is it, is it pretty easy to get from general F-sharp code to the kind of DSL that the solvers are expecting? That's, uh, again, a great question, and kind of leads me into flips and why I like F-sharp. So a lot of the libraries that existed, still exist, are very object-oriented in their API, where like, hey, I'm going to okay. new up a solver object, and I'm going to like add constraints to that object. I'm going to add decisions to that object. And, and so it's, it's, it's a very OO-style way of working. Do you need to worry about that mapping down to the solver underneath and like the heavy math? No, not at all. And that, that is what they are abstracting away from you. Like you don't need to think about it. The same way with the database. I send the database a query. I get a result back. I don't really need to think about that stuff. With flips, the idea was to say, hey, let's take that workflow of like building a model and solving it, but do it in an F-sharp style. And... FLIP stands for F-sharp linear programming system. It's like a backronym. <laughs> and, <laughs> and what F-sharp, part of what I love about it is F-sharp is very much about composing things, building things up. And so the FLIPS library is about, hey, we are going to build up a model which represents our problem. And then we're going to take that model and we're going to send it to the solver. And flips abstracts out that going from the kind of F-sharp representation to that object-oriented API. That's where all like the nasty mutation is hidden. <laughs> but it can removes that detail from you. You don't need to worry about that. And the nice thing about that as well is that it's a natural way of expressing and building up your problem with these F-sharp constructs. Part of what F-sharp gives you that's really valuable is it's really easy to make these really small specific domains for your problem, create a very small set of types to represent your domain for the purposes of modeling, as well as units of measure. And this is where F-sharp, I believe, kind of pulls away from the other languages and working with them. In the world of mathematical planning, the two biggest pain points for doing this is you're doing a lot of indexing into collections because often your data is dimensional. Let's go with this like assigning jobs to machines example. Let's say like, hey, I need to have a decision which represents assigning this job to this machine. So mm -hmm. it'd be very natural for me to keep those decisions in a map, in an F-sharp map. And the index, the key for that is going to be a tuple of the job and the machine. If I was working in C-sharp or Python or anything, and those are great languages, I'm not poo-pooing on those languages, often we wouldn't necessarily take the time to create full-on types. We would just say like, you know what? I'm just going to say it's string string, right? I'm just going to create mm. a key for that. And it's going to like the first string is going to be the item and the second string is going to be the machine. 
But imagine if you're doing that type of thing all over the place. It is so easy to lose track of, was the first thing the machine or was it the item? Oh shoot, I don't remember. So now you're kind of, do I take the time to like make all these types in C-sharp and like override their equalities and like, do I do all that? Mm. Well, in F-sharp, it's very easy to say, hey, I'm gonna create a single case discriminated union for item and another one for machine. And now my map is keyed by this tuple of two types, item and machine. And it's very easy to keep track of how is this thing indexed? The efficiency gain from that is huge. And the number of weird error scenarios that you run into is really pared down because a lot of the times, even if you swap those things, like the math might still work because of just like the, the solver is just like, hey, it's all just numbers to me. The model might still work and might give you an answer. It might not make any sense. And now you're trying to debug, like, why is this thing not making sense? Having types to represent all those values and indexing by them is a huge efficiency gain and protects you against those scenarios. I know it doesn't like sound super awesome, but <laughs> the, that, that power of being able to <laughs> create those domains to really accurately model what it is I'm trying to do and how data is represented is with right, low, with low overhead. overhead. Thank you. Cause that's what I'm not going to say who said it, but I often get developers from other languages saying like, well, you can do this in, you know, object oriented language X. I'm like, yes, I know you can do it. I'm just saying it's much more overhead. So you're much less likely to do it. <laughs> Whereas an F Yeah. If I can do it in one or two lines yeah. then that's great. Yeah. And I that's think a huge win. That is a big deal. This interrupts your thought, right? You, if you take adventure off to the side to, oh, shoot, I'm going to like mm -hmm. deal with the equality and all this, it, you, you lose context oh, yeah. of what you're 100%. trying to really do. So the, part of why I love F-sharp for this domain, the other part is the units of measure. Units of measure, like, like I said near the beginning, is, is really undersung feature. And one of the other huge error scenarios in mathematical planning is like, well, the sum of this has to be less than or equal to that. And like you're doing all these kind of comparisons and stuff. It's really easy to lose track of your units. And so on one side of the equation, it's in units of kilograms. And the other side, it's kilograms mm -hmm. per second. But if you don't have any compiler checking that, again, it's just floats. It's just, it's just going to work. And so the solver is going to get it. It's going to find an answer for you. Again, it won't make any sense. And it's because, well, your formulation doesn't make any sense. There's nothing there to help you. With F-sharp, if you're like, no, 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 no. This is not a float. This is one kilogram. And then on the right mm -hmm. side of the equation, it's like, oh, this is one kilogram per second oh, that doesn't match. And so that's one of those things mm -hmm. if you're using the flips library that you kind of get, if, if you want to, it's opt-in. If you can say like, hey, I don't want to worry about units of measure. Or you can say like, yeah, let's go full. Let's go the, all the way. We're going to guarantee units of measure. So all that stuff has to match up. And that's a feature that is pretty unique to F-sharp. I know there are some other experimental languages out there that have units of measure, but not as not as cleanly implemented, I don't believe. When would you not use mm. mathematical planning? Like, or what are some downsides or some things that maybe seem like they could fit into mathematical planning at first? But yeah, I love this question. Fit? There are some things to consider. One of the first things I ask people is, well, how long do you have to make this decision? If you say, hey, we need a tool 
business comes to me and says, I need a tool that gives me the best allocation. And I'm going to stick with the, the jobs and machines. Like, hey, I need something that mm-hmm. assigns jobs to machines and obeys all these constraints. And I need it to, and I need a solution in one second. It's like, oh, okay, really? <laughs> that might be challenging. And then we kind of have this discussion, like, is it really one second? Does it really have to be that fast? Because like example with the query thing that we were talking about before, if I'm writing a query and I'm retrieving data, I know there's going to be some amount of latency there. And if it's a really complex query and the, and the indexes aren't great, it might take a little bit to get that solution back from the mm-hmm. database. In the same way with the solver, I give it a model and I can give it a time budget saying, like, hey, you only have 10 seconds. Tell me whatever you find in 10 seconds. It might not be able to find an answer in that amount of time. Hmm. So, so like I'm thinking quick and loans like self-service on the website or stuff like that. It probably is not good for immediate response, impatient people. Yeah. So with what we do, like we're giving it a few minutes, right? And saying like, hey, this is a really valuable question. We are only asking this question a few times a day and it's worth it to us to give it 10 minutes to get an answer. And that's okay because these are billion dollar decisions. It's okay if we wait. If you're in another scenario, though, where you're like, hey, I, I need a solution. It's making thousands of decisions a minute, and I have limited resources, and I have really tight time constraint. Well, then this might not be the solution for you. It might take it a little bit to find an answer. Small problems solve within a second, 10 seconds. But you have to think about what, what the time constraint is I have. I imagine there are some situations where you're going to ask the same kind of question many times so that mm-hmm. the model generally stays the same and the mm-hmm. data may differ underneath. Do these solvers have some kind of mechanism to cache the model, if you mm-hmm. will, and get ready to index the data in a certain way such that mm-hmm. when you ask the question a second or third time, that mm-hmm. it's much faster? Oh my gosh, love this question. So this is where we get into discussion of open source versus proprietary mm-hmm. solvers. I do not believe the open source solvers support that. It's called giving it a solution seed. Different libraries will call it a different thing, but you can give it mm-hmm. an initial feasible solution, which is high in terms for like, hey, solver, instead of starting from the very beginning, I'm going to give you a starting point. Like start with this as your base and search from here. Right? Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. So you can imagine, so you can imagine like if I'm having to cross the United States, and you say like, give me a route from Seattle to New York. What you could do is you could save that route. And then let's say some new information has come in about mm-hmm. like, oh, well, there's like really bad traffic on this one freeway or something. You say, okay, solver, give me a new route. Use this as your starting point. So it doesn't have to find all the connections again, mm-hmm. but now you've like added a penalty to one of the connections. So it's going to search for a new one. It's, it would okay. be, be kind of like that. So Groby supports that. Cplex supports that. I haven't worked with the other proprietary libraries, but mm-hmm. I know that's absolutely a thing. And that's a great scenario that you're talking about there. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, you know, like our needs just kind of are evolving slightly throughout the day. And so we want to take the plan we currently have, and we just want to see if the solver can tweak it for us. I want to jump back to something you said earlier. You mentioned giving the solver a time constraint, let's say mm-hmm. of you know 10 seconds or 10 minutes or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Is it often the case that you are searching for the optimal solution, or is it more often the case that you're saying, find me the best solution within this amount of time? Fantastic question. I guess a related question mm-hmm. is when we're talking about constraints, I'm imagining, again, my, my experience with optimization in general is pretty limited to mm-hmm. 
you know, simplex method, that kind yep. of thing, where you have very simple X must be greater than mm -hmm. five. Yep. We're very hard constraints. Are mm -hmm. those the kind of constraints that you're working with? If yep. so, those hard constraints might feed better into finding the answer versus finding the best answer within amount of time. Yeah, so it's funny you mentioned that simplex method. So that's like one of the things that's hidden down deep in the solver, right? Okay. So those are the type of constraints that we're talking about. They're, they're okay. hard constraints. You can model soft constraints, but we don't need to get into that. <laughs> but sure. yeah, it's generally, you're talking about hard constraints. Let's talk about your scenario where like, hey, you know, I have a time limit. What's the solver going to do if it gets to time? There's a few different things that could happen. One possibility is your model has no solutions. The $10 term is called infeasible. And it's like the combination of constraints that you've created means that like, there is no solution to your problem, mm -hmm. right? We're saying like, hey, I need all the work done on Monday, but nothing's available until Friday. That's not going to happen <laughs> because like that doesn't make sense. So then you try to obey most of the constraints? Well, typically what the solver will do is say like, I can't find a solution because what you described is not possible. Hmm. So then you could say, hey, am I going to remove some constraints or how am I going to deal with that scenario? Another possibility is that it finds the optimal solution, right? Within, I said like, hey, I'll give you 10 minutes and one minute in, it comes back and says, I have found the optimal plan. Fantastic. There is another scenario where it gets to time. It has found a solution that meets all the constraints. It thinks it's pretty good, but it can't guarantee you it's the best solution. Mm -hmm. So it will come back and say, hey, here's the best plan that I found. That's still really valuable, though, because often what happens is that the solver find, has actually found the best solution. It just hasn't proven it to itself yet, mm. because the way the solver works under the hood is that it's basically a tree search. It starts at like this node at the top and mm -hmm. it has different ways it can search in different directions. So you could think of that as arcs coming off of that node. It says like, okay, I could go these different directions. It goes to one of those nodes and then there's branches off of that node. And it has part of the fancy math is knowing like, hey, these are the different ways I could go. I need to prove that this node that I'm at is the best possible node that's when the solver will come back and say, hey, I have found the best possible solution. But it could be a scenario where like, hey, I found a node, it's really good. This plan I found is really good, but I haven't eliminated all the other possibilities yet. And that, depending on your problem, could take a while. You've actually still found the best solution. You just haven't proven it yet. That's still really valuable. That is. Yeah, it kind of gets me wondering, if even before whatever time limit you put in, there might be kind of a, a, a stream of solutions that come back. Let's say I'm, I'm looking at a map and I want mm -hmm. driving directions from here to there. I could imagine first thing it does is it, it tells me, get on the highway, drive the whole way, get off the highway, like the, the most mm -hmm. basic three-turn path. I could imagine it kind of feeding me solutions throughout, even from the first second, and then eventually kind of ending up in a model. Does that happen often where you have kind of a stream from the solver? Yeah, you're definitely talking about a more advanced use case. I have not done it, but I believe the Groby solver allows you to have callbacks. So mm -hmm. as it's finding solutions, you could have it say, hey, when you find one, you know, call this function and like do something with it. Right, that's what I'm thinking. I haven't needed it for the scenarios that I've worked in. But yeah, that's definitely something like that is possible. There's typically metrics that are being reported back. 
So you can mm. interrogate this thing as it's going like, hey, how, how, how are you doing there, bud? <laughs> like, uh, how well is this gone? And you can see if the solver has found what appears to be the best solution, but is mm. really just kind of chewing on eliminating the other possibilities. That typically happens pretty fast. Most of the time the solver is taking is just eliminating those other possibilities. But again, that's more advanced stuff that like your average developer, like you don't need to know these things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm just nerding out here. <laughs> oh, for sure, for sure. I just don't want a developer to be like, be intimidated. Like you don't need to know these things to use it. So don't, don't worry about it. <laughs> I certainly feel more comfortable with the idea that I, I give this thing a set of constraints and some data. It gives me back an answer. I'm already thinking of a few scenarios that both previous jobs and current job that mm -hmm. could come up. And so that's nice. You at least empowered me. <laughs> awesome. And that, that's really the point of everything that I'm doing is to just em empower the average developer with these tools. Because you said like, hey, you're thinking about some problems in the past, like, oh, kind of wish I'd known that this was a thing. I often, when I sit down with other developers in my organization and I'm just talking to them like, huh, why wasn't this in our curriculum? Like, why didn't we learn this in school? I'm like, well, first of all, you have to cut something. You can't teach everything at university. And this didn't come from computer science, so it doesn't cross over the disciplines. Some other things that I wanted to mention about like when not to use mathematical planning. Hmm. Sometimes your problem just can't be represented. Sometimes you, hey, let's say you have a, you have a quantifiable objective, you have constraints, you have decision variables, you have all these things, but like for some weird reason, weird business logic, is just, you can't represent it. Or like, hey, our cost function is this really bizarre thing that can't be accurately modeled in this DSL. Hmm. So I'm saying that's a possibility. If you think you're running into that scenario, please reach out to me. I'd love to have a discussion with you because Tim Buck says we could probably figure <laughs> it out. <laughs> but I am conceding it is theoretically possible. The other thing is that organizational trust is often the hardest part of these solutions where you have someone who's a domain expert who's been doing this for a long time. They're very familiar with the space. And now you're mm -hmm. gonna come in and say like, hey, I can just turn this into an algorithm. Yeah, it, I'm gonna replace you. <laughs> yeah, it's super easy. Turns out people don't respond super well to that. So the biggest challenge for me is sitting down with those experts and really understanding their problem space and their challenges. And what's often the case is, as I get that fear of like, oh, we're just going to replace you. That, I get that. Often what happens though, is that this tool becomes an enhancement for their job. And so now they're, instead of spending two or three hours a day on making these plans, they're actually able to iterate through several plans where I tell it to solve. It gives me an answer I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. Now I want to like tweak one of the variables. I want to tweak some of the data and see what that answer is. And then they want to play around with it. And their domain expertise is invaluable for really harnessing the power of that planning tool because the human being is going to have some additional context that the planning tool might not have. Mm -hmm. And so they're probably going to be the best user of that tool, but it's gaining that person's trust and gaining their buy-in that is really challenging. But at the end of the day, that person ends up yielding crazy amounts of value. I'm saying this as someone who has worked with some people at Quicken Loans, 
in this space of trading mortgages, we have some really exceptional people who have been doing this for a long time and have deep expertise. And their insight into the problem space is really what guided the development of that model. And they became the best users of it. Mm-hmm. And they helped us figure out when there was problems and we were able to tweak it and redeploy it. And it was a very synergistic relationship, but that took, it took time to build that trust. And that's true of like any tool that we as developers put out, but like this one is like even more so I think, because it's like, it's just going to like magically find the best answer for you. <laughs> well, it's, it's not magic. Just trust it's just, it. <laughs> it's just a lot of hard math, but it's, it feels like a black box when it's really not. Do you find many of these domain experts learn F-sharp along the way to help do the code of the actual modeling? In my scenarios, not so far. The reason why has recently been addressed, which is what I'm very excited about. So in the past, if you really wanted to use it, you could create an F-sharp script using like a, you know, a .fsx file, but importing NuGet packages was so painful. <laughs> hmm. And I, I was a not, I was not a good enough developer to figure that out. Like, I think I got it working once. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm not doing this again. And then with F sharp five, with the idea of the hash R NuGet import, I was like, oh my word, my world has just fundamentally changed. And so what I'm really excited about now is I'm working with non-developers to install VS code, install ionide, and then just do hash our NuGet flips and you're off to the races. Oh, that's sweet. It's, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Like, like <laughs> I'm just like so looking forward to all the, the learning materials that are going to come out of that new feature. That impact is going to be pretty dramatic. I'm very excited. So that's great. So you're a pretty heavy user of F sharp scripts. Now it's like, it's almost never closed. It's like all I do. Mm. <laughs> Whereas before I would always, I, like I said, I was just kind of a lazy developer. And so I'd always be spinning up Visual Studio just to deal with like the NuGet packages because the yep. solver is some NuGet package I need to bring down. But once that feature came out, I, I haven't looked back because it's all just F-sharp script and I'll play around with an F-sharp script. And then once I feel like, okay, yeah, I've, I've figured this out. I can then take that and pretty easily put that into an F-sharp solution and just build my service around that. Yeah. But my speed of iteration is so much higher. What does it look like? I, I'm a developer. I've been doing F-sharp for a while. What does it go from where I am right now to doing my first mathematical planning problem and kind of integrating that in? Probably the easiest way to do it is, like we just mentioned, having VS Code and Ionite using Hashar NuGet flips. And there are multiple examples on the flips website. So that's just flipslibrary.com. And you can see examples that you can just copy and paste and run them there. So you can just kind of see like what the workflow looks like. There's also, I did a workshop that I'm going to be giving again, which is basically an intro to mathematical planning. That's up on YouTube. It's, just over three hours, I believe. And all of the, there's a GitHub repo that goes with it. So you can follow along. And in there, I go from knowing nothing about mathematical planning to understanding what it is, how to do it, how to formulate problems. And in there, I also created kind of a small production worthy 
model with property based. No, I didn't do property based testing. I didn't go that far. (laughs) But like there's unit tests for models. Like, hey, how do I create unit tests for models Mm. to verify that they're doing what I want to do? So if you wanted to see like, okay, cool, I see how you did that in a script, but what does it look like in a Visual Studio solution with other projects? How does that work? There's examples in there as well. That's probably the easiest way to kind of get onboarded with it and just to get using it. And it's just following those examples. But like I said, I really like the VS Code with Ionide experience now with the Hashar NuGet. Yeah, I, I definitely I saw that workshop a few weeks ago. I, now I'm motivated to go back and check it out. Oh, cool! Right on. Yeah, like I said, I'm gonna going to give it again. I've gotten some great feedback on it, and I I hope to just continue putting out content for people to be able to learn this stuff. My blog is another place where I spend a lot of time translating from the business problem description to, okay, what does that code look like? And I go at a pretty slow pace on purpose. And so for advanced people, like if someone is like an experienced operations research developer and they've been building models for years, it's not for them. (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely focused on developers who are curious and just wanting to understand it. And it's written in a very casual style to kind of just kind of take people on that journey. That's great. Yeah, I'm definitely going to check up on blog posts too. So where this has been a great conversation about mathematical playing. I'm certainly motivated to, uh, to, to go into it myself a little bit more and potentially apply it to some problems at work. Uh, where can listeners find you and kind of learn more about this? I know the flipslibrary.com, you said. Uh, yep. Where else? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at MC. Cruise, C-R-E-W-S, and I check that pretty regularly. It's pretty easy to get a hold of me. I'm also on the Slack. They have Sharp Slack, and that's just at M-C-R-E-W-S, M-Cruise. And, yeah, you can reach out. Uh, my website is MatthewCruise.com, and feel free to email me. I'm, I'm responsive to all those things, and and if you and don't hold back your questions. I, I love getting questions from people about like, hey, Matthew, I was thinking about this. And like, maybe do you think this would be a good opportunity? I'm like, ah, absolutely. And uh, I might often what I like to do is take questions from people and then turn those into blog posts mm. so that I scale a little bit better. But I, I will get <laughs> back to you as, as quickly as I can and say, like, hey, I got it. And I'm going to let you know. So I will answer your questions. And, and I really love doing that. I, I come from a family of teachers. I taught as an <laughs> adjunct for a while. I, I love teaching people. It just doesn't pay very well. So yep. yeah, <laughs> I became yeah. a developer. <laughs> it's been a really great conversation. I appreciate it. Any final words? Uh, no, go ahead. Check it out. Feel free to reach out to me. And just really excited to help people. Thank you very much. This has been fantastic. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew, for talking to me today. So it's been about a week since that recording. I have since watched Matthew's mathematical planning workshop on YouTube, which is a bit shy of three hours long. I found it to be fantastic. I have to admit, I skipped around a few parts, which were repetitive with this content here. But in general, I think most of it's probably worth watching, even if you've listened to all this. He goes through, obviously, code examples, which are hard to transmit through audio. He goes through more real-world examples where mathematical planning was a very useful tool, such as Hurricane Katrina, how to deal with the resources of medical support and whatnot, given the finiteness of everything. He goes through a lot about structure. How do you structure the code, A, when you're dealing with just a script mathematical planning problem, and then also how do you make it scale 
when you're working within a, a real F-sharp solution. After the structure and scaling conversation, he goes through testing, which I was kind of curious about the whole time we were having the conversation here. So how do you test this? He goes through that really well. I was very satisfied with the testing scenario. And finally, he talks a little bit deeper about deployment scenarios and about how you can deal with that.